Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour. This is a 60-minute weekly program bringing you news from a variety of sources. Looks like this week our primary sources will be theroot.com and the New York Times. This is being recorded on the 4th of October, no, pardon me, the 4th of November for the listening week that begins the 5th. Your reader's name is Susan Shirey. Let's open with news from The Root. From their Race Matters section, Alabama voters have a chance to strip racist Jim Crow language from their constitution This was written by Marjani Rawls and posted on the 2nd. The original 1901 document installed poll taxes, restricted interracial marriage, and sent incarcerated black people to labor camps. During the midterm elections next week, voters in Alabama can choose to ratify a new state constitution that completely strips away its racist rhetoric from the past, according to the Associated Press. When Alabama's constitution was ratified in 1901, it was made with Jim Crow-like restrictions in mind. That meant poll taxes and bans on interracial marriage. Altogether, this document has been amended 978 times, Voters in 2020 authorized state officials and lawmakers to cut the racist language entirely out. All that's left is to ratify the 3,774 word document into law. The original document had language that allowed parents to opt into letting their children go to, quote, schools provided for their own race, and made a labor system that black Alabamians had to work in mines and labor camps once they were arrested. These were clear legislative directives to hinder black citizens as much as possible. The following quote from the original document comes via the Associated Press. The new constitution eliminates the ignorant Negro vote and places the control of our government where God Almighty intended it should be with the Anglo-Saxon race. John Knox, president of the Constitutional Convention, said in a speech urging voters to ratify the document. Various court proceedings have struck down these provisions, but the wording remains in the original Constitution. Alabama representatives feel this gesture will show that the state is in a different place than it was with its previous history, oh, pardon me, is in a different place than what its previous history has shown. Ultimately, it's up to the voters to choose yes on the question asking whether to ratify the Constitution of Alabama of 2022. This is an effort to show not only the rest of the country, but the world who we are today, said State Rep. Merica Coleman, one of the lawmakers who led the bipartisan effort. 
Next, written by Keith Reed, published today on the 4th. What's next for black Twitter after Elon Musk's massive layoffs? Elon Musk's, pardon me, massive layoffs. Can the company protect organic communities with its staff cut in half? Today's the day for Twitter's most dramatic and likely traumatic for employees changes. Since Elon Musk completed his $44 billion buyout, the planned mass firing has the potential to decimate Twitter's internal diversity and to impact user experience and content on the service, highlighting the challenge for Musk in owning an entity that serves multiple purposes, colon, tech behemoth, cultural phenomenon, and critical platform for information and culture. Musk plans to cut as many as half of Twitter's estimated 7,500 worldwide employees and as pardon me, an unprecedented mass layoff for a company that as recently as last year was still growing headcount at a rapid clip. Staffers have been told they'll be notified whether they still have jobs by 9 o'clock Pacific time today, according to The Hollywood Reporter. Twitter's staff works across a range of functions, from engineering to content curation, sales, marketing, and administrative functions. Musk hasn't said whether the layoffs would be more heavily concentrated in any one particular department over another. What's also up in the air is how the layoffs will impact the company's internal diversity. About 9.7% of Twitter's employees are black, 8.4% are Latinx, and 4.5% are multiracial, 1% are indigenous, according to the data and research website Statista. Twitter's second largest employee group by ethnicity is Asian at 30.8% and 38.8% of its workers are white. There is also concern about how Twitter will function after losing half the people responsible for building the site, keeping it running, and bringing in revenue, and how Musk's overall plans will impact black Twitter and other communities that formed organically on the platform and are responsible for much of its growth and popularity. Musk says he wants the site to purge the number of annoying bots and fake accounts, a goal that would seem to require more staff, not less. But he's circumspect about content moderation on Twitter and has promised to loosen rules on hostile and inappropriate content. According to one report, use of the N-word and other hate speech spiked on Twitter by 500% on the day Musk completed his takeover. Several black celebrities and influencers have either left the platform or have promised to over the past week. Musk met with leaders from several civil rights advocacy organizations on Tuesday to discuss concerns over hate speech and other content issues on Twitter although that meeting did not include an executive from any group representing LGBTQ communities. Next, the article discussing that meeting with Musk, also written by Marjani Rawls, published on the 3rd. 
Elon Musk speaks with civil rights leaders about Twitter hate speech concerns. The new Twitter CEO spoke with groups such as the NAACP and Color of Change about the midterm election and his moderation policies. With the midterm elections on the horizon, talks of mass layoffs, and the uptick of hate speech on the platform, everybody is rightfully worried about Twitter's direction. New Twitter CEO Elon Musk had a Zoom call with a collection of civil rights groups on Tuesday to assure them that hate speech and election disinformation would be curtailed, notes Politico. The participants included the NAACP, the Anti-Defamation League, the Asian American Foundation, Color of Change, and more. A notable omission is groups that represent people who identify as LGBTQ+. There was some confusion as to whether Musk would allow previously banned users back on the platform. Musk wrote in a tweet about the meeting that, quote, Twitter will not allow anyone who was deplatformed for violating Twitter rules back on the platform until we have a clear process for doing so, which will take at least a few more weeks. Musk has stated he plans to create a moderation council to look at existing policies regarding content that could be considered harmful. However, the steps outlining what the council would be doing have not been presented to the public yet. The groups on the Zoom call were cautiously optimistic about the call, but leaders like NAACP President Derek Johnson still have some concerns. The following quote comes from TechCrunch. The NAACP met with Elon Musk to express our grave concerns with the dangerous life-threatening hate and conspiracies that have proliferated on Twitter under his watch. According to a report, hate speech increased by approximately 500% in the first 12 hours following his acquisition. Now let that sink in said NAACP President Derek Johnson in an emailed statement. It went on, Nazi memes, racial slurs, and extreme far-right propaganda do not belong in the town square of any democracy or online platform. In the immediacy, it is critical that Twitter's existing election integrity policies remain in effect until, at the very least, after the midterm elections have been certified. Free Press and other civil rights groups published a report calling on Twitter's top 20 advertising partners to hold Musk accountable regarding his content promises. Co-CEO Jessica Gonzalez said she would wait and see if Musk would stay the course. She said, these are words and we will hold him accountable based on his actions, not on his words. Next, a profile of a new arts outlet in Brooklyn, written by Angela Johnson, published on the 22nd of October. No outlet for creatives in his neighborhood, so he built one. Seed Brooklyn is a new community-centric arts and retail destination in Bedford-Stuyvesant. Take a walk down any Brooklyn street, and artists, fashion designers, and other creatives are everywhere. But many find themselves having to schlep across the river into Soho, Tribeca, or other trendy Manhattan neighborhoods to showcase their work.
No one understands this better than Christoph Roberts. The Chicago-born, Brooklyn-based artist has lived that experience for over a decade. His passions and interests were always on the other side of the Brooklyn Bridge, leaving him to wonder why the options were so limited in his Bedford-Stuyvesant neighborhood. So he decided to take matters into his own hands and embarked on a five-year journey developing the concept for Seed Brooklyn, a space to nurture the creativity that Brooklyn has always been known for. There's a world that exists here and I felt was missing an experience like Seed, he said. And I'm from the school where you build what you don't have. Roberts and his team literally built Seed from the ground up, and he says he approached the design and construction like an art project. Everything about the space, which officially opened on October 21st, is intentional and a treat for all of your senses. Post-COVID, any space you go into has to be multi-layered. You can't just have a rack of clothes, he said. You need a narrative. You need to have an experience. And as a multidisciplinary artist, building experiences people can interact with is one of the things Roberts does best. From the moment you walk into Seed's Greenhouse Cafe, you're transported to an artist's paradise that includes coffee from La Colombe, plants for sale, vinyl collectibles, and more. And once you're caffeinated, you move on to the garden, a two-level immersive retail space which is carefully curated with books about art and culture, along with apparel and accessories from a mix of well-known and promising designers, including Martine Rose and Jason Mark. There's also a Japanese-inspired sneaker laundry that lets you get your kicks clean while you wait. From there, you move on to the Oasis, an event space and NFT gallery that features technology that helps artists and art lovers to interact with the digital space. I didn't think that the digital space was necessarily approachable, especially when it came to the blockchain, NFTs, and stuff like that, said Roberts. I created a sculpture called the Seed Pod, which is a display system with digital touch screens, nooks, and shelves in each wall that really makes sense for NFTs. Something that sets the Oasis apart from other NFT galleries is the partnership with Infinite Objects, a company that makes frames for digital prints. When you mint an NFT, you get a physical item, even if the artist doesn't have merchandise. So you always walk away with something. Robert's vision for Seed includes giving back to the Bedsty community with general classes on entrepreneurship, freelancing, and more. I want to bring in lawyers to talk about LLCs for protecting creative assets, he said. If you can't make it to Bedsty to visit Seed Brooklyn, you can still connect with the space on their website where a lot of fashion and collectibles are for sale. We're building a global brand, so we put a lot of energy into the e-commerce site, he said. To have a fair fight, we just have to be as resilient on the web as we are in person. 
As Roberts prepares to share seed with Bed-Stuy and the rest of the world, he hopes to inspire other artists to create. Seed is inspired by my journey, the landscape around me, and the needs of it, he said. Still reading from TheRoot.com, from their coronavirus department. This written by Amira Castilla and Dr. Melissa Clark and was published on October 29th. Five reasons why you haven't contracted COVID-19 yet. There are some compelling reasons why you may not have been affected. We have been battling COVID for a few years now, and there are some people who have never been diagnosed with the disease. Are they an anomaly? A special kind of person? How are people dodging this disease? Dr. Melissa Clark is here with a few reasons why, and according to her, the fact of the matter is that those who have remained COVID-free are a minority segment of the population. Only a portion of the population has remained COVID-free. The disease is everywhere. Number one, masks. The first reason is masking. Dr. Melissa Clark is confident that masking has been a significant help in preventing the spread of COVID, believing that, quote, the healthiest people are those who have been devoted maskers throughout the pandemic. There are an overwhelming amount of masks to choose to wear, but the best are N95s as they provide the most protection. The next highest level of protection is KN95 masks. Surgical masks provide much less protection and cloth masks, pardon me, cloth masks are very ineffective. Number two, social distancing. The second reason is that you might be good at physical distancing. Distancing allows circulation to happen keeping the infected particles from crowding. Those who think they've evaded the virus this long may have been able to successfully physically distance themselves, which includes working from home, avoiding gathering indoors in crowded places, and staying isolated from household members while they were infected with COVID. The next two reasons are still being researched. Number three, built-up antibodies. You might have a lot of immune cells and antibodies built up in your system from prior common cold infections caused by other previous coronaviruses. These people have had some built-in protection to keep them from getting infected by SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus. Number four, genetics. The fourth potential reason that is being researched is genetics. A minority of people's bodies may not be vulnerable enough to the virus because of genetic variations that make it harder for the coronavirus to bind to and get inside their cells. And number five, you may have unknowingly had it. Lastly, the majority of people who think they have not gotten COVID likely had it but never realized it. According to Dr. Melissa Clark, 40% of people who get infected will never develop symptoms, and many more had mild symptoms, so never got tested for COVID, and hence never knew they had it. And one that I archived from The Root as I was scanning last week, but it was published on October 28th, so it's not particularly old. 
The Threat of an Inclusive American Theater. Some thoughts. I have received death threats and must travel with security detail, all because I want our industry to be more diverse and inclusive. This was written by Nataki Garrett. When I accepted the role of Artistic Director of Oregon Shakespeare Festival, OSF, in 2019, I did so knowing about its reputation for being at the forefront of equity and inclusion. This effort to evolve, to progress, and to reflect humanity began in 1935 when Agnes L. Baumer founded what is now the Tony Award-winning theater company I Lead. But I was never meant to be here, not in Oregon, that began as a whites-only state who deftly crafted black exclusionary laws were designed to keep people like me out, not in American theater, an industry whose deep institutional racism was never meant to create space for black women in leadership, and not in this moment when we are more politically and racially divided than I have witnessed in my lifetime. And yet, despite all of this, here I am. The first black female artistic director OSF has appointed in its 87-year history. I am in a unique position to implement the types of changes I want to see in our theater and our industry moving forward. This starts with creating an environment where all feel welcome. And as one of the few women of color in the country to lead a large, historically and predominantly white theater company, I am confronted often with the lack of our voices and stories in this space. As an advocate who has worked to increase diversity throughout my career, it often feels like change is slow as the pendulum swings in both directions. For as proactive as OSF has been at working to shift systems of power from exclusivity to inclusivity, reactions to these changes have been swift and sometimes violent. For example, when I first arrived at OSF, I was told that in the 1950s, the first black actress to ever play OSF was hired at a time when Ashland largely functioned as a sundown town, one in which African Americans risked harm if they were found within the city limits after sundown. The lore is that this actress had to be escorted to and from the theater to protect her from bodily harm. This references Sundown Towns, A Hidden Dimension of American Racism, which was written by James Lowen. That is merely the earliest example I could find, though throughout the course of OSF's history, many people of color who have worked there, pardon me, who have worked here, have been threatened, as I have. A recent NPR article that was focused on the changes to our theater gained national attention in large part because of one sentence. Garrett has received death threats and now travels with a security team in public. Like many theaters across the country, OSF is as progressive as it is also entrenched. That is what the death throes of a long history of white supremacy looks like, where efforts to alter and heal 
from racialized systems are met with backlash. We need only look to the tragedy in Charlottesville or the riots in Portland in 2020. We need only pay attention to the senseless murder of 19-year-old Aidan Ellison for playing his music from his car in a parking lot right here in Ashland in 2020. Local reporting of that murder focused not on the young man who was killed, but on the humanity of the killer as a father who was staying in the hotel with his son after the Almeida fire took his home. In the realm of politics and the unjust murders of black and brown people in America, where and how do making plays fit in? Classical Greek theater was a place for debating the social and political issues of that time. In his day, Shakespeare's heavily political dramas were entertaining, educational, and popular, and have been used flexibly throughout history to make meaning and challenge cultural assumptions. This is perhaps why changes in the theater stoke the same fears and anger that changes in the White House or increasing diversity in an all-white town stoke. Historically, the individuals who believe they have ownership over the theater, who have been the self-appointed arbiters of high art, are at an inflection point of change. It is no longer good enough to diversify a cast every now and then. It is no longer enough to put on a play that has been written or directed by a person of color every once in a while. These tokens have in the past been considered liberal, progressive, even risky acts for our industry, and perhaps rightly so. But now the entire system is being called upon to shift, to become inclusive at every level for its survival. Everything from artists, cast and crew, to administration, marketing, and fundraising. And while you might be hard-pressed to find an artistic director who would admit to compromising their mission for a funder, for most theaters' bottom lines, individual donors are bread and butter. Because people of color have long been marginalized in American theater, donors of color are extremely rare, creating deep institutional inequities in philanthropy. Without diverse representation, what happens when existing donors no longer align with the fully inclusive direction of the theater? And what happens when you pointedly focus on those who have been traditionally excluded from their donorship at these institutions? These are questions we must contend with and challenges we must address. Since 2020, after George Floyd was murdered and the nation was asked to reckon with the persistence of its white supremacist history, the New York Times repeatedly reported on this history as it expressed itself in American theater, from the Great White Way through to regional, local, and nonprofit theater. Not only did black artists and other artists of color come forward to share their personal experiences with racism, including threats of personal harm in their profession, we joined together to demand change in the theater. That's referencing We See You, White American Theater, a manifesto of which I am one of the 300 signatories. 
But data about funding and demographics also revealed an overwhelmingly white leadership and workforce. From artistic directors to marketing and communications, which means theater inside and out, artist and audience, is a real and perceived stronghold of white prestige and power. Inseparable from the history are the economics, read a 2021 article on Broadway's racial reckoning. Despite generations of discriminatory policies that have limited everything from property ownership to inherited wealth, non-white Americans now account for $4.7 trillion in spending power. However, audience demographics for Broadway and live theater in general have remained overwhelmingly white, about 76% of buyers each year. End quote from that article. The theater industry has not evolved in step with the artists who are creating culture-shifting seminal works and the audiences who want to see them. And so the struggle is not only with theater goers who are not ready to share their space, but with an industry that still operates to secure that space for them. The challenges I have faced are symptomatic of a theater industry that has just enough people of color to make a noticeable change, but not enough people of color to eliminate the barriers that have long kept us out. This is why steps toward inclusion are met with accusations of exclusion. Why people of color in the industry are applauded for bringing in new, bold perspectives, yet accused of not appreciating or understanding the classics. Why criticism can give way to threats of harm. After the broader media picked up on the threats I had received, Penn American issued a statement of support writing, Such threats and intimidation are inherently anti-democratic, wielded in hopes of silencing the voices of artists and suppressing creative freedom and they pose a danger to every artist's freedom of expression. For those of us who seek to reflect the world we live in through the work we put on our stage, this statement speaks to the core of what we do. It is our mandate to uplift the voices of artists, the truth-tellers, and change-makers, so they can continue to hold a mirror to society. And the truth is, The reflection in that mirror has changed dramatically over the years. According to the 2020 census, nearly every county in the United States had become more diverse in the last decade and, for the first time, the nation saw a decrease in the white population. Before the pandemic, it was reported that ticket sales and subscriptions, the people who actually go to the theater to see the works, were declining. We are emerging from the pandemic in a new world, and we must get people back into the theater. The more we fight to keep diverse voices out, the more we will fail to sustain our industry. My mandate as an artistic leader is clear, to place the artist at the center, create the new conduit for how we engage, develop, and access new work, and how we interrogate the classics in both live and digital spaces. I see artists as thought leaders and change makers who transform culture by reflecting our current humanity back to ourselves. 
I trust artists throughout history and into the present because they have their ears to the ground and their hands on the pulse of humanity. They provide their hearts to help us deepen our empathy and broaden our horizons to what is necessary and possible to make a brighter future. They are our mirrors to society, even and especially when society refuses to see its reflection. A note on the author, Nataki Garrett, is a nationally recognized director and the sixth artistic director of the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, one of the few women of color in the country to lead a major theater company and OSF's first black female in this role. For additional information, visit www.osfashland.org. Our next few articles come via the New York Times. First one is a profile piece on the Reverend Calvin O. Butts III, who passed away last week. I believe I covered this with a shorter article in a previous week. This is more detail. And was written by Sam Roberts, posted October 28th. The Reverend Calvin O. Butts III, dynamic Harlem pastor, dies at 73. He led Abyssinian Baptist Church and helped revitalize his community by building housing, some of which he reserved for existing residents. The Reverend Calvin O. Butts III, the Harlem preacher whose talent for oratory and political savvy was a force for social and racial justice, and who raised $1 billion to remake America's most storied and influential black neighborhoods, died on Friday at his Harlem home. He was 73. His son, Calvin Obutz IV, said the cause was pancreatic cancer. In Mr. Butts' three decades of, as pastor of Abyssinian Baptist Church, his work reflected the dramatic changes in how Americans confronted the nation's history of racism. In New York, he challenged the white power structure and turned promises into action, creating educational, commercial, and home ownership opportunities for Harlem residents. He took inspiration from the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. in the 60s, and by the dawn of the 21st century was a partner of Mayor Michael R. Bloomberg, in attempting to create lasting change in Harlem and beyond. Hired by the church when he was a 22-year-old seminarian, Mr. Butts helped deliver on the soaring sermons of its newly minted pastor, Samuel Proctor, and his immediate predecessor, the irreverent and flamboyant 11-turn congressman Adam Clayton Powell, Jr., Transforming his role into a bully pulpit, the urbane Mr. Butts also helped revive Harlem with housing, mitigating gentrification by reserving a portion for existing residents, a supermarket and other commercial development, and a high school. Reverend Butts took the idea of building the kingdom of God literally, Mr. Bloomberg said in a statement after his death. Mr. Butts also persuaded some record labels and radio stations to reject violent and misogynist rap lyrics, 
whitewashed Harlem billboards that advertised liquor and cigarettes, and played politics transactionally to wrest the most resources for his community from whichever party was in power in Washington, Albany, and City Hall. Reverend Butts worked more effectively than any other leader at the intersection of power, politics, and faith in New York, said Darren Walker, the president of the Ford Foundation and former chief operating officer of the Abyssinian Development Corporation. He went on, he understood the role of faith in our lives, especially in the black community. But he also understood power and how to wield it and how to demand power from those who often sought to hoard it. And so he was a pragmatist, he was a realist, but he was also a dreamer. The nonprofit Abyssinian Development Corporation became a model for other faith-based development companies that invested in their communities, both in New York City and nationally. Sheena Wright, Mayor Eric Adams' deputy for strategic initiatives and the corporation's former president, described Mr. Butts as a civil rights leader whose, quote, impact from creating educational institutions, commercial development, home ownership, affordable housing, and providing social services for those in need will be felt for generations. The corporation was established in 1989, the same year that Mr. Butts became Abyssinian's pastor, prompting him to modulate the rhetoric he had been able to exercise more freely as the church's second-in-command. In that earlier period, he accused some black elected officials of being too accommodating to the white power structure and Mayor Edward I. Koch of outright racism. He even threatened to run against those officials when they sought re-election, but he never did, although he had dreamed since he was in third grade of someday becoming mayor of New York himself. When more militant black leaders balked at cooperating with investigators in the racially motivated killing of a black man chased by a white gang onto a highway in Howard Beach, Queens in 1986, Mr. Butts intervened to broker Governor Mario M. Cuomo's appointment of a special prosecutor. But the next year he deftly distanced himself from the accusations of Tawana Brawley, a black teenager who said that four white men had kidnapped and raped her, a claim that was never proven. While we did not always agree, we always came back together, the Reverend Al Sharpton, who had defended Ms. Browley, said in a statement. In 1986, a third of the musicians of the New York Philharmonic, many of them Jewish, boycotted an annual concert at Mr. Butts's church because he refused to repudiate the black Muslim leader Louis Farrakhan, who had called Judaism a gutter religion. Mr. Butts told the New York Times then that he disagreed with Mr. Farrakhan's remarks on Judaism, though he supported some of his economic and social positions. But he insisted that he had been asked to flatly denounce Mr. Farrakhan. All I'm saying to the Jewish community is, don't dictate to me, said Mr. Butts. I understand your anger. I'm not a fool. I don't hate Jewish people. In fact, I quite respect what the Jewish people have done. 
but please don't make me a boy and tell me what to do. During his 33 years as pastor, Mr. Butts weighed his words and chose his battles carefully in reconciling sometimes discordant constituencies. White civic leaders who had anointed him a progressive, responsible, black opinion maker, his own socially conservative congregants, and other black New Yorkers who were fed up with perceived mistreatment by the police and with economic inequality, he was left jockeying for relevance among them with full-fledged militants like Mr. Sharpton. Mr. Butts was instrumental in enlisting the Democratic Michigan Michigan Congressman John Conyers, Jr. to convene hearings on police brutality in New York in 1983, hearings that nudged the Cook administration to appoint Benjamin Ward later that year as the city's first black police commissioner. As chairman of the Abyssinian Development Corporation, he funneled some $1 billion into residential and commercial projects in Harlem. Sean Donovan, the Bloomberg administration's housing commissioner, said the corporation was instrumental to the continuing revitalization of the surrounding community. Mr. Butts also helped create the Thurgood Marshall Academy for Learning and Social Change, a public, intermediate, and high school in Harlem. From 1999 to 2020, he was the president of the State University of New York College of Old Westbury on Long Island. During his tenure, the college gained additional accreditation, established its first graduate programs, and expanded its campus. Mr. Butts was also the president of the Council of Churches of the City of New York from 1998 to 2008, the chairman of the Harlem WMCA, pardon me, YMCA, and president of AfriCare NYC, which sought to improve life in rural Africa, and a member of the National Black Leadership Commission on AIDS. Calvin Otis Butts III was born on July 19, 1949, in Bridgeport, Connecticut. His father, Calvin O. Butts II, was a butcher and cook at the Black Angus Restaurant in Manhattan. His mother, Eloise Edwards Butts, worked as a supervisor for the New York City Welfare Department. Calvin learned to read in a one-room schoolhouse in Georgia when he made summer visits to his grandparents there. He was raised until he was eight at the Lillian Wald Houses, a public housing project on Houston Street on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. When the family moved to a private home in Queens, he attended a mostly black elementary school. But when the Board of Education instituted an open enrollment policy, he was able to take a bus from Corona to Forest Hills and attend the integrated Russell Sage Junior High School. He graduated from the predominantly white Flushing High School, where he was elected president of the senior class in 1967. He was admitted to Trinity College in Hartford, but he couldn't afford the tuition. Instead, he attended the historically black Morehouse College in Atlanta on a partial scholarship. He was watching the Western movie Shane, with other students in April 1968 when he learned that Dr. King had been assassinated. He said later that he was one of several people who made Molotov cocktails, burned several stores, firebombed a church, and terrorized cars with whites in them. Quote. 
We were on a good roll, he recalled in an interview with the research and educational institution, the History Makers, in 2005. He went on, I looked down at one of these Molotov cocktails, and I looked up at this half-truck, pardon me, half-track truck, and this guy with his big shotgun and his very red neck, and all of a sudden I understood that violence was not the way. After majoring in philosophy and minoring in religion, he graduated in 1972. He originally planned to pursue a career in industrial psychology or to teach philosophy to undergraduates, but a recruiter lured him to Union Theological Seminary in Manhattan. He earned a Master of Divinity degree there in 1975 and a Doctor of Ministry in Church and Public Policy from Drew University in Madison, New Jersey. As a pastor, he generally preached against what he considered the sin, in abortion included, rather than the sinner. He was 13 when he first attended Abyssinian. A cousin had taken him to hear Mr. Powell preach. Shortly after Mr. Powell died, a dean suggested that his successor, Dr. Proctor, needed an assistant and noted that Mr. Butts, who was married and had a baby son, needed a job. In addition to his son, Calvin, Mr. Butts is survived by his wife, Patricia Reed Butts, the founder and president emeritus of the Abyssinian Baptist Church Health Ministry, another son, Alexander, a daughter, Patricia Jean Butts, and six grandchildren. One week after Mr. Butts was hired, he was invited onto the pulpit by Dr. Proctor. That was 1972, he said not long ago, and, quote, I've been there ever since. He plunged into politics, even circulating nominating positions for a campaign for school board, but the church's elders persuaded him against it. Why? Because they said, the kinder ones, you're a young man and we love you. We want to see your ministry grow and develop, said Mr. Butts. He then recalled them saying, referring to Mr. Powell, we've already seen one young man destroyed by politics. He served as youth minister, assistant minister, and executive minister before being named pastor. While Mr. Butts was much less mercurial than Mr. Powell, he was not to be taken for granted. In 1992, he endorsed the independent candidate Ross Perot for president. In 1995, the same year he invited corporate executives and the Republican mayor and governor to Harlem to raise money for his development corporation, he hosted also Fidel Castro at his church. In 2009, he was said to have promised to endorse the city comptroller, William C. Thompson, Jr., for mayor, but ended up backing the incumbent, Mr. Bloomberg, after Mr. Bloomberg donated $1 million to the development corporation. He told the Times in 1995, There is room for the uncompromising, belligerent, nasty, guerrilla activist, but you change when you are responsible for an institution. I got folks I gotta pay. I got families. My style was very confrontational, very in-your-face, Mr. Butts explained in a 2008 interview with Julian Bond. He went on, At once, physical altercation was not impossible for me. My style has, as I've matured and grown older and understood more about life and people and traveled, it has become more negotiable. Still reading from the New York Times political article, 
Written by Clyde McGrady, posted October 24th and updated on the 25th, it says, Why a black democratic city won't have a black democrat in the house. Sri Thanadar's primary victory means that for the first time in nearly 70 years, Detroit may not send a black representative to Washington. Dateline Detroit On a recent sunny Saturday afternoon in a neighborhood park in the middle of this sprawling city, residents were distributing free backpacks for students heading back to school. Girls sat patiently under a pop-up tent to get their hair braided, while other children gleefully leaped and collided in an inflated bounce castle. One person stood out in the mostly African-American crowd, a slim, 67-year-old Indian immigrant in a white t-shirt and dark pants, hopping from tent to tent and chatting with parents and neighbors who seemed excited to see him. The man, State Representative Sri Thanadar, had beaten eight black candidates in a primary to become the Democratic candidate for Michigan's 13th Congressional District, meaning that for the first time in almost 70 years, the nation's largest majority black city is unlikely to have a black representative in Congress. His victory set off waves of anxiety among Detroit's black political leaders, who tried desperately to prevent Mr. Tanadar from winning. Parentheses. A primary win in such a heavily democratic district is tantamount to being elected. Black leaders describe it as an embarrassing and disappointing and argue that Detroit should have representation that reflects its population, which is 77% black. Three-quarters of Detroit voters supported a black candidate. The outcome is also testing the limits of racial representation in a city with a long tradition of black political power, at a time when that power is being challenged and drained on other fronts. In Los Angeles, the city council was recently shaken by the release of secret recordings of racist remarks and efforts by Latino leaders to shrink black influence in that city. Detroit began sending two black delegates to Congress in the 1960s and elected its first black mayor in 1973. By the 1980s, black membership and status in the state legislature was rising and half the city council was black. Now to the challenge, pardon me, now the challenge to black political power in Detroit comes from divisions within its own leadership and from constituents. Reapportionment cost Michigan a house seat last year, and the newly redrawn district maps reduced the number of black voters in the 13th district. After years of severe economic insecurity and a string of political scandals, some residents are showing a willingness to try something new. In 2013, Detroit elected Mike Duggan, its first white mayor since the 1970s, the same year that a former mayor, Kwame Kilpatrick, was convicted of charges including racketeering and extortion. Five years later, Rashida Tlaib became the first woman of Palestinian descent to be elected to Congress when she won the seat once occupied by John Conyers Jr., a towering figure in Detroit politics who resigned over sexual harassment allegations. Those victories and Mr. Tanadir's point to an emerging sense among some black constituents 
that the psychic, emotional, and symbolic benefits of racial representation may not have materially improved their lives. Well, let's go back years and years and years and see that when we had those people in office, they all didn't meet up to what they said they met up to, said Kimball Gaskinsell, a 58-year-old black man who helped organize the backpack giveaway in the park. He said of Mr. Tanadar, let's give the man a chance. Detroit's population has fallen by more than one million since 1950 and for decades, its leaders have been promising a renaissance. Since emerging from bankruptcy in 2014, the city's core has managed an impressive revival. Its downtown sparkles with new restaurants, shops, and hotels, but Detroit's comeback is limited and uneven, highlighting racial and economic disparities that have long frustrated residents. Between 2010 and 2020, the city lost about 93,000 black residents, many of whom departed for metro area suburbs while gaining more, pardon me, while gaining slightly more Asian and white residents and people who identify by more than one race. In 2021, the unemployment rate among black residents of Detroit was 20% compared with 11% among white residents. The median black household earned a little less than $35,000 when rising rents and inflation began to eat into family budgets. It kind of irritates me to see downtown being built up and the neighborhoods being neglected, said M. Lewis Bass, a 71-year-old tenant organizer. Mr. Bass, who is black, voted for Mr. Tanadar in the primary. He said he liked Mr. Tanadar's tendency to pop up at community events. It shows a genuine interest in the citizen, he said. Mr. Bass expressed hope that Mr. Tanadar would work to curb landlord power and address rising rents and evictions. Other Detroiters say that residents will be worse off. It's disgusting for the city to be without a black representative, said Stavetta Johnson, 73. A retired social worker who leads the Trade Union Leadership Council, Ms. Johnson said she was concerned that a representative of another race wouldn't look out for black Detroiters when it comes to bringing money and resources into the city. On the surface, Mr. Tanadar, who arrived in the United States in 1979 and later started a successful chemical business, might seem to be an unlikely politician to represent the newly redrawn 13th district, whose population is now 45% black. He is a wealthy man who lived in Ann Arbor before moving to Detroit three years ago. He spent $10.6 million of his own money on an unsuccessful run for governor in 2018 and has so far spent around $6 million from his own pocket on his congressional campaign. Activists and voters in the district's poor and working-class neighborhoods point to how Mr. Tanadar seems to show up everywhere at jazz concerts, at tenant meetings, repeatedly, and sometimes unannounced. At the backpack giveaway, Mr. Tanadar told a mostly black audience that students deserve a quality education, quote, no matter what zip code they live in, because we are all children of the same God. He encouraged voters to hold him to his promises. He said, you can have my cell phone number, call me. He ended his talk with, I love you all, 
the small cloud, pardon me, the small crowd erupted in applause. Mr. Tanadar often reminds Detroit voters of his humble beginnings. He said he wants to increase black entrepreneurship, close the racial wealth gap, and improve the quality of education. Mr. Tanadar says he is not naive about the challenges he would face in representing, pardon me, in representing such a diverse district. It includes parts of Detroit, several white working-class downriver communities, and the wealthier suburbs of the Gross Points, with tree-lined streets of brick houses with lawns as manicured as Center Court on the first day of Wimbledon. He said he contacted the Congressional Black Caucus about joining once he is elected, but he learned that the caucus's bylaws allow only black members to join, a restriction that he says he understands. Political observers say that many factors contributed to Mr. Thanedar's victory. The district's newly drawn boundaries take in some whiter, more conservative communities outside Detroit. Low voter turnout and a crowded primary allowed Mr. Thanedar to squeak through with just 28% of the ballots cast. Even so, political leaders say ignoring Mr. Thanedar's ability to appeal to black voters would be a mistake. And that is our final article for this week, which I needed to edit for length. Thank you so much for joining us for the Black Experience Hour. AINC Programming is brought to you in part by Network for Good. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-786. 7777.